0: Greetings, everyone. I'm Jeffrey K. Lyons. We've got a loaded show today, and we begin with a story about the BRICS nations, which meet this month, that's August of 2023, to discuss a new global currency. And next, the EV bus manufacturer, Proterra, located in Greenville, South Carolina. Well, they just filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And in a related story, vehicle manufacturer Ford is projected to lose... $4.5 billion this year on its electric vehicle division. And finally, new documents reveal that NIH scientists Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins received 58 third-party royalty payments between 2010 and 2018. According to a Freedom of Information Act request, By Open the Books All of this and a new feature of this program Which I'm going to call The Bigger Picture So here we go with today's edition of Narrative Wars I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons, And you don't want to miss this we the people are sick and tired Let's peel back the curtain of confusion To shed light upon the mainstream media madness And now Narrative Wars with your host, Jeffrey K. Lyons. We, the people, are sick and tired. So tired. Well, we're going to jump right into this first piece, and it has to do with the BRICS nations that's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Well, Professor John Quelch. He discusses the BRICS Nations announcing their own currency. And this is something that's basically been in the works for ten years, but it looks like it's about to happen very soon. So let's take a listen to this. Cut number one.
1: the United States dollar under threat? Well, the U.S. dollar became the backbone of the global economy after World War II because of America's robust economy, its democracy, and its transparent regulatory systems, which made the nation seem like a safe place for international investors. But now the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa have announced plans to develop a new currency. What will this new currency look like, and what will it mean for the dollar? Well, joining us now is Professor John Quelch from the Miami Herbert Business School at the University of Miami. So the BRICS nations aren't a formal trade block. So if they do in fact create this new currency, how will it ultimately be used? So it would initially be used in very large transactions that are government style transactions between two or more of the countries involved. The BRICS nations combined, Their GDP is around about 25% of world GDP vis-a-vis the U.S. now at 24%.
0: So let's take a a moment to think about this. The world GDP, 24% of it is the United States. Well, that is the primary reason why the United States of America is so powerful. It's not the military it's not a lot of other things you might be thinking about. It's the fact that we are the industrial superpower of the world. 24% of the world's gross domestic product comes from the United States of America. So what they're trying to do is they're, the combining of these five countries, again, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, they're saying that if you combine the economies of these states You've got 25% of the world's GDP. Certainly, it's going to challenge the United States' dominance of trade. Well, in a related article, The BRICS Go For Gold, this is Forbes, July 16, 2023. Russia and China, of course, are leading this consortium of, of BRICS countries. And they, of course, they, they, they want to challenge the dominance of the U.S. dollar and even the euro. So how is this going to happen? Well, uh, here's another related story. How long will the dollar last as the world's default currency? The BRICS nations are gathered in South Africa. So this is going to happen again in South Africa. This month, which is August 2023. This story, Fortune, June 25th, uh, 2023. So the author, Mihaly Papa, uh, notes that this has accelerated the creation of a BRICS currency, whatever form it's going to take or whatever we're going to call it. We don't really know yet what it's going to be called. It's been accelerated over the past decade, and especially when Western sanctions on Russia after its invasion of Ukraine have accelerated the process. Well, why? Well, to back up what happened was when Russia invaded Ukraine, one of the responses what the United was that the United States locked the Russians banks out of the system called Swift, which is the global messaging system that enables international bank transactions. And the West froze Russia's US $330 billion reserves. And that happened last year. SWIFT stands for Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. Now, this may not be something that most of us think about on a daily basis. Certainly not. But this is extremely important, extremely necessary. It is the way that Monies are transferred from bank to bank. It's a messaging system that allows debits and credits and bank balances to flow between nations. Just to give you an idea of how important this system is, how robust this system is, SWIFT has 11,000 member banks, and each bank is issued a BIC, a bank identifier code. And so 11,000 members or 11,000 member banks in this system, in 2022, there were 44.8 million messages every day. 44.8 million transactions between banks from nation to nation all over the world between these 11,000 member banks. So getting shut out of this system as a nation, uh, Russia clearly... It, it hurt. That's a, I suppose an understatement. So yes, they were motivated to create another way of doing international transactions. So this is something that is not talked a lot about. It is mentioned in the press, but we have to understand uh, what has been taking place within the last two years. So within this, Uh, International banking transaction system, 88% of international transactions, they're conducted in U.S. dollars currently, and uh, that accounts for 58% of all global foreign exchange reserves. Russia, China, Brazil have turned to greater use of non-dollar currencies. This has been happening. Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and the United uh, Arab Emirates, Uh, they're also exploring dollar alternatives. And central banks have sought to shift more of their currency reserves away from the U.S. dollar into gold. So all of this is taking place, and it's taking place uh, as we just get up every day and go to work. We're about to see a major pivot, a major change of the way that international business is conducted. And if the U.S. dollar uh, gets superseded in terms of no longer being the currency of choice, the basket of currency to be held for international uh, trade, it's going to signal major, major changes uh, in the United States of America because we rely upon international trade and uh, costs of goods could uh, go through the ceiling. A lot of things could happen which will impact our lives as Americans. Well, in another story, let's take a look now. We're moving from dollars uh, being traded internationally to dollars going up in smoke in Greenville, South Carolina. Electric bus manufacturer Proterra files for bankruptcy protection. And uh, this story from WYFF News 4 in Greenville, South Carolina. Let's take a listen to this cut.
1: New this morning, electric bus and truck maker Proterra says it's seeking Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection from a federal court in Delaware. The California company is a supplier of buses for transit systems across the nation, including Greenville. President Biden took a virtual tour of the Greenville factory in 2021 to highlight electric vehicle makers. According to Proterra, it intends to maintain normal operations and will file motions with the court to use existing capital to keep funding operations.
0: So, Proterra was one of those uh, companies that was being paraded around and put out in terms of public relations uh, successes by the Biden administration. And now, oh, too bad, it's going into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Too bad for American taxpayers who have supported this company. Well, Proterra is an electric vehicle company, and they made buses, electric buses, and the again the uh, factory is located in Greenville South Carolina it was valued with assets and liabilities at somewhere between uh, 500 million and 1 billion and that's down from 1.6 billion in January 2021 but the company's stock plummeted to nearly a third of its value within an hour of the announcement of Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Well, that's no surprise. The investors and the creditors want to get out of that company uh, in order to at least have some money in the bank instead of losing all of their investment uh, monies. Biden participated in a virtual tour of Proterra in uh, South Carolina in 2021. So this was still during COVID, but... He did a virtual tour of the factory as a PR event and uh, put that out electronically. Now, in a related story, uh, if you go back to 2011, if you remember, there was a company called Solyndra, and it was also hailed by another Democrat president, President Obama, as being a terrific success and a shining star in the greening of America And the Green New Deal, also known as the Green New Steel. And this article, ABC News, August 31st, 2011, cylinder collapse, a waste of half a billion by Obama. Oops, half a billion of taxpayer dollars here, there, in the dumpster, on fire. Very unfortunate. And uh, a couple things to note here this is House Energy uh, Committee chair uh, at that time. He said that it was a massive federal loan, classic case of waste. Uh, Republican members of the House Energy Committee accused Obama administration of wasting more than half a billion, not million, half a billion dollars in taxpayer money. That's $500 million. Uh, another way to look at it, by b- making a federal loan guarantee to a troubled solar-powered company. So they're already in trouble. And, oh, here, have another $500 million. Uh, You know, that'll keep you going. And then Obama went to uh, the factory out there in uh, California and walked around and did a PR event. Uh, and, uh, well, this one went up in smoke also. Solyndra, a California-based manufacturer of rooftop solar panels, they opened in 2005, and in 2009, they were Obama administration's first recipient of an energy loan guarantee to the tune of $535 million. It helped to, uh, you know, minimize risk for investors. But now, of course, they are gone. They are history, and that was back in 2011. Do you see any pattern here? of bad investments, of taxpayer dollars. You see how poorly this uh, idea of the Green New Deal, the Green New Steel is working. You see how the U.S. government really should not be pushing companies. What we have here is the U.S. government getting involved in venture capital loans. Highly risky, and it didn't work. It did not work with Proterra. It did not work with Solyndra and complete failure. Well, moving on to our next piece, and in a related story, another green fail story. We moved from two manufacturers, Solyndra, the solar panel company which failed back in 2011, Proterra, which just failed in 2023 just declared bankruptcy, and now we're moving to Ford. Now, Ford, of course, has been around a long time, but their EV division, which is also being propped up by promises from the U.S. government that, hey, we're going to push this, and you're going to have customers that are going to want to buy these EV cars. Well, in this article, Newsmax, July 28, 2023, Ford expects to lose 4.5 4.5 billion on electronic vehicles this year. Let's take a listen to this. Cut number two B.
1: New AP NORC poll, only 19% of Americans say their next car will be electric. And the reasons most gave for not wanting one, the cost is too high, not enough charging stations, and it takes too long to charge, and they just simply prefer gas engines. The American auto and energy industries are under attack by Washington and here to break it all down. Mandy Gunasekera, she's the former chief of staff of the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, Mandy, before we get to kind of the impacts, we know that this White House is not going to try to go through Congress to do this. Um, You've been in the regulatory environment. How will they try to impact these huge segments of the economy by fiat? Well, they know that by the time they get the regulations final, the car companies are already going to be designing their future cars for model year 2032, which is when over two thirds of cars sold are supposed to be fully electric. They're going to start that design process in five years. So. The regulatory approach in the Biden administration will be to quickly finalize these rules, then that signal and then hope that it takes a long time for the Supreme Court to actually catch up. Because at the heart of this is a major legal problem that the Biden administration will continue to ignore. But it's a reinstitution of the major questions doctrine, which basically means that the agency must point to clear congressional authority if they're going to try to do something like redesign the entirety of the transportation sector, mm. and they do not have that authority.
0: So that last observation there, it's a redesign of the entire transportation sector. Folks, there's another simple word for what we're seeing here, and it's fascism. And that's when a government is pushing certain commodities, certain companies. They're picking winners and losers. And government is basically in bed with big business. And this is exactly what we're seeing. Now, it didn't work with Solyndra back in 2011. It didn't work with Proterra in 2023. And it seems like it isn't working with Ford either. They're projected to lose $4.5 billion dollars on their new EV division, Fortune said that Ford's revised forecast comes from sluggish receptiveness by consumers to the new battery-powered vehicles. So far this year, Ford's EV division has shed or lost nearly $1.8 billion, uh, Fortune reported uh, Ford now estimates it's going to ramp up production to 600,000 units a year by 2024. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> because if you've got all these vehicles on the lot that nobody wants to buy, it's really rather meaningless. Ford even reduced prices on some of the EV cars last week by as much as 17%. Uh, Fortune reported that Ford generated $45 billion in revenue last quarter, 12% increase. So Ford overall... They're able to take this hit, but how long can you keep bleeding like this? It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make good business sense at all. Reuters reported that U.S. government plans to end purchases of gas-powered vehicles by 2035. So the U.S. government is saying, well, we're going to buy Your electric vehicles. Uh, The government owns close to 650,000 vehicles according to this article and they purchase about 50,000 annually. So the government in essence is bribing companies like Ford. Well, we'll buy uh, these vehicles and we'll stop purchasing gas-powered vehicles. Again, This is what fascism looks like. Government in bed with big business pushing an agenda. So let's continue on with this next cut. Still talking about EV cars and the debacle that Ford has got itself into.
1: The Biden administration using climate change as an excuse to levy a slew of new proposed regulations that will have a profound impact not on the climate necessarily, but on the economy and how every American lives and works. As of August 1st, incandescent light bulbs and halogen bulbs will be banned in the United States. Democrats are advancing legislation at a state level to ban gas stoves. And now the White House releasing a new proposal that would require at least 54 percent of new vehicles Sold in the U.S. to be electric by 2030 and just over two years later in 2032, two-thirds of all vehicles sold would need to be electric. The average price for an electric vehicle right now is about $65,000, It's more than two and a half times that, of a gas-powered
0: car. So the U.S. government is going to say you must buy these electric vehicles by mandate, by fiat. There's another word for that. It's called tyranny. They're acting like dictators. This is tyranny, and it's staring us right in the face. You must buy these electric vehicles. We're going to phase out gas vehicles. Two-thirds of all vehicles sold by year X must be electronic, and they're setting these arbitrary dates. 2030, 2035, it's really rather meaningless. I mean, we're here in 2023 and we don't know who the president is going to be at that time. The point is they're setting these artificial caps that are forcing car manufacturers to cease manufacturing gas-powered vehicles and forcing those same manufacturers to make electronic vehicles. Well, the electronic vehicles, unfortunately, they're going to cost about $65,000 each, which means most people are not going to be able to afford two cars anymore. And again, we've talked about this in past programs. The cars are not very efficient in terms of charging, in terms of how far they will go. You won't be able to drive across the country and take that 10, 12-hour drive to go halfway across the country, a third of the way across the country, and just fill up a tank of gas and keep going. It's not unusual for people to drive 10 hours, 12 hours, fill up the tank of gas once, maybe twice. But you won't be able to do that anymore with electronic cars. The whole goal of this, and the government's not going to tell you, It's to restrict movement of Americans, its control, its power. It's going to be the destruction of the middle class. People who have typically had two vehicles because vehicles are accessible, they fit within the budget, they're not going to be able to have two vehicles anymore if each vehicle is $65,000. Or they'll have much older vehicles, which they're having to repair constantly to keep them on the road. All right, moving on to our next piece. And this is Greg Piper with Just the News, and he discusses Anthony Fauci's 58 royalty payments. It was between him and also uh, another scientist, and that is... Uh, Francis Collins, they received 58 royalty payments uh, over a number of years. And uh, let's give a listen to this uh, information that just recently broke.
1: National Institutes of Health and its scientists developed technology or inventions Uh, they get paid for licensing those out to companies. Uh, So you can directly profit from your work at the NIH from uh, companies around the world uh, in America and China, uh, someplace that may be a little hostile to us or maybe using it for things we don't want them to do. Uh, So what happened in this uh, Freedom of Information Act litigation is uh, a court forced uh, NIH to turn over uh, the names of the companies that are actually paying license fees um, and who they're paying them to uh, the individual scientists. So Uh, Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins came up 58 times together uh, on this list that just came out. Uh, We don't know the amounts they were paid. That's still uh, redacted. That's the subject of ongoing litigation.
0: So, all right, let's roll this back. So the NIH and the scientists involved are collecting royalties for patents that they share with these companies and even more insidious is that taxpayer dollars funded these large companies, which are all over the world, so taxpayer dollars were used in order to secure these patents, in order to do the research. Then NIH, NIH got um, National Institute of Health and uh, other agencies of the federal government, uh, they received royalties, and then a portion of those royalties went back directly to Uh, to the scientists. So mm, can anybody say kickback scheme? Because that seems like what we're talking about here. Uh, Continuing in the article, Francis Collins, Anthony Fauci, longtime directors of National Institute of Health and National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Uh, Remember, Francis Collins was uh, with the National Institute of Health, and Anthony Fauci was with National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, also known as NIAID. They personally received, between the two of them, 58 royalty payments uh, from companies to license their inventions developed with taxpayer money. Newly disclosed record relief. Wow, what a sweet deal. So the U.S. government uses uh, taxpayer money. They give it to these companies, which are all over the world, and then they create these patents, and the patents are licensed uh, in the U.S. with the names of these scientists on the patents, and then the patents uh, generate Income for the U.S. government and money is given back directly to the to the scientists uh, at the U.S. government. So I give you money to do the research. It gets registered in the United States. You give us money back and then I get money back. So I get money back for giving you money and creating a patent. You see this, this insidious circle here? this kickback scheme, and all of this is done with taxpayer money. All of this is done with U.S. taxpayer money. Well, OpenTheBooks.com on Wednesday published more than 1,500 pages of unredacted records identifying which companies paid NIH scientists uh, for these inventions. Uh, there were 56,000 transactions that were revealed uh, by Open The Books in these 1,500 pages of unredacted records. Uh, now that adds up to more than 325 million dollars. Uh, that came back in royalty payments to NIH and N I A I D, and a portion of those went back directly to Collins and also Fauci. Now they're they still don't know how much money that Fauci and Collins received. They're still researching that, so this is a developing story. Twenty one payments from four companies uh, between 2010 2018. Uh, led by 12 from genetic research uh, GenDX, which has received $5 million in federal contract monies. Okay, so all of these payments uh, went to Collins, the NIH director who stepped down at the end of 2021. Senator Rand Paul, Republican Kentucky, has been tracking this story, and he has had Fauci on the stand saying, well, I doubt I received any royalties uh, from any of these companies. Well, now the information is here. Now the information is all in black and white. So uh, Fauci is going to have some problems lying to Congress, lying to the United States Senate on record. And so I'm sure we're going to hear more about this story and we're going to be tracking it in the future. Well, Narrative Wars continues to expand its audience both in the United States and internationally. And we're so thankful for you, our Narrative Wars listeners. We know you could choose to do other things with your time and we honor your commitment to free speech, the American values that still make us proud to be living in the land of the free and the home of the brave. You can follow us on Twitter and Getter. Just go to Jeffrey K. Lyons. That's at Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-K Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S. And for more information, visit our website at narrativewars.org. That's narrativewars.org. Also, when you listen to us on your favorite podcasting app, please, five-star rate, follow And tell two to three like-minded friends. And that's how we continue to expand the Narrative Wars Posse. We truly appreciate your support. You are the reason why we do this program. And now, let's continue. Well, this final story has to do with the great state of Texas and the recent ban on transgender athletes from women's college sports teams. Let's hear it for the state of Texas. Yeah, good job. Great job, you guys. Okay, all right. Okay, enough of that. Let's move on to the details of this story. Riley Gaines hails Texas law banning transgender athletes from women's college sports teams. Now, this is Washington Examiner, August 7, 2023. So the law was actually signed a number of weeks ago. So they had a ceremonial signing Uh, in order to, you know, really uh, make a public splash and uh, let people know, let the community know, let Texas know, and probably let the rest of the United States know what just took place. So uh, what happened was uh, National Collegiate Athletics Association swimmers, both Riley Gaines and Paula uh, Scanlon, they both praised Governor Greg Abbott. They were at the ceremonial signing of this bill, And uh, it occurred uh, just recently in uh, early August of 2023 at the Texas Women's Hall of Fame at a women's university. It happened on Monday. Now, making Texas the biggest or the largest of the 16 states that have placed restrictions on transgender athletes. Now, here's what Riley Gaines had to say about this bill. Quote, today feels like that one meat that one race that you train for, it's pretty amazing that this law is even necessary. If you have eyes and a brain and any amount of common sense, you can easily comprehend the fact that men on average, and this is a fact, they're taller, stronger, and more powerful. So that was Riley Gaines. And she's saying that it's just not a fair competition when men... Compete against women. Gaines also complained that six foot four inch Thomas undressed in front of her in the locker room. Quote My teammates and I tried to voice our concerns to the athletics department, and this was in the University of Pennsylvania where Gaines used to compete. We were told that Leah's swimming was non-negotiable and we were offered psychological services to re-educate us into the idea of Thomas competing and undressing next to us. Scanlon said, we, the women, were the problem, not the victims. Well, clearly they were the victims, but they were being treated as the problem. SB 15, known as Save the Women's Sports Act by its supporters, it's going to go into effect in September 23, and it was formally signed into law on June the 15th. Texas joins more than 20 other states that have banned transgender women and girls from joining women and girls sports teams at K-12 through 12 and collegiate levels. And here's the part that really mystifies me, which notably, I'm glad that Gaines pointed this out. She Gaines hammered the NCAA that's National Collegiate Athletic Association, and member schools for how she said they have purposely attacked women athletes in a way that violated the federal statute, that's Title IX, that protects people from sex-based discrimination at any educational institution that receives federal funding. Quote, by allowing male athletes to displace female athletes in the pool or on the track or field, or on the podium, the NCAA and its member colleges intentionally discriminated on the basis of sex. Well, now it's time to take a look at the bigger picture. Last week, if you missed it, I shared the heartwarming and true story of a wedding that I attended. The couple was young and their early 20s, never married, no previous children, and deeply in love with each other and committed to marriage and God. It was a rare occasion. My wife and I were so blessed to be there as guests and as witnesses. Well, this week we take a look at something a bit more common, something that we all encounter but perhaps we're not fully prepared for As we set out in the journey of life, the particular cultural behavior that I'm referring to is tipping behavior. Well, I'm going to begin my personal journey with this cultural rite of passage when I was a preteen. And for some odd reason, my parents let me go into a restaurant with a friend alone. My parents weren't there. I had been to this particular restaurant many times with my parents and I was familiar with the setting and the breakfast menu. I'd also seen my parents tip the waiter or waitress at the end of the meal, but what I lacked was an explanation of why this behavior was an expected courtesy. I didn't know that the wait staff depended on tips because the hourly pay was typically minimum wage. I never held a job, so I didn't even know what a paycheck looked like. Somehow I had the requisite cash in hand In order to pay for my meal. Being the preteen miscreant that I was, I decided to do something that I thought was funny. I left a very small tip. Ashamedly, I left one penny in plain view on the table and then quickly exited. Yeah, I really did do that. And I really was a preteen. I was woefully unprepared. I'd never earned a paycheck. I lacked the speech about. Tipping between 10 to 20% of the meal. I never got that speech from my parents. I didn't understand that it would be rude to engage in such a childish gesture as to leave a mere penny on the table. I was a child, and that's what I did. I never did that again, and I've regretted it ever since. Well, recently I've noticed that tipping is now being suggested electronically. Even at some fast food restaurants, some genius figured out that if a business owner can't afford to give people raises, well, they can increase the pay of their wait staff by letting the credit card transaction automatically ask for the tip. And I've seen this creep into the electronic cash register systems. In the last few years, yeah, you know, that's when you go up and you're about to swipe your card and it says, how much tip do you want to put on 15%, 20%, 25%, or sometimes it'll just throw out a dollar amount. I've seen that at the place where I get a haircut. Haircuts are typically 20 or $25 and it'll say, all right, how much tip do you want to get? And the lowest amount is seven bucks, which is higher than 20% of a $20 haircut. Well, apparently electronic tipping suggestions have been programmed into the POS cash registers for years. In a 2018 article titled, Don't Let Technology Bully You Into Tipping, posted on nerdwallet.com, the article points out that, quote, many people feel added pressure because the would-be recipient is standing right there watching the transaction even in restaurants where customers used to leave a cash tip or a signed credit card receipt on the table. Waiters may be swiping cars and presenting them with the quote, add a tip screens. The article also summarizes the social norm of tipping the information that I didn't have when I put the penny tip on the table so many years ago. Quote, tipping rules haven't changed Regardless of what a merchant screen is telling you, says Etiquette Expert Lizzie Post, co-president of the Emily Post Institute and co-host of Awesome Etiquette Podcast. 15 to 20% is still the accepted range for taxi rides, haircuts, spa services, and table service in a sit-down restaurant. Well, all of this leads me to my second observation, and that's that tipping behavior as a social norm, it doesn't travel in a ubiquitous manner cross-culturally. In other words, American tipping behavior, well, it's not going to really work in Europe and certain other countries outside of the United States. I noticed this when my wife and I took our first cruise a number of years ago tipping is not allowed on cruise ships. At least it wasn't on the cruise that I took. The cruise guests are told that tipping is already included in the fare, and all of this makes for a much more enjoyable cruise experience. If one does not consume a large quantity of adult beverages, the cruise experience can be quite a bargain. Feeling better about myself, armed with some of this new knowledge, I decided to search the academic literature. And my research question was, has anybody studied tipping behavior? Well, to my joy, I discovered yes. There's a small but growing body of research out there. Other social scientists have had a compelling desire to get to the bottom of the curious idiosyncrasies of the social norm of tipping or engaging in voluntary gratuity behavior. There was a study back in 2020 by Offer H. Azar titled The Economics of Tipping and published in the Journal of Economic Perspectives in 2020. Now, Professor Azar has published numerous articles and done quite a bit of research over the last decade or more on the topic of tipping. And he may be considered one of the world's most distinguished experts on societal tipping behavior he observed the following one he observed that in many us states employees that receive tips have a lower minimum wage even as low as 2.13 an hour resulting in wage income being very low and two Lizzie Post writes in her Etiquette Manual in 1997 that, quote, It wasn't long ago that 15% of the bill, excluding tax, was considered a generous tip in elegant restaurants. Now the figure is moving towards 20%. There's a table in the article that asks the question, why do people give tips? And it contrasts a sample in the United States to a sample of consumers in Israel. Top reason in the United States was tipping is a social norm, followed by social gratitude and waiters depend on tips. Quite a difference in Israel. The top reason in Israel was to show gratitude. Second was tipping behavior is a social norm. And third was waiters depend on tips. So it seems that in the United States, social norm was the top reason. This is just what you do, whereas in Israel, the top reason is show gratitude. In other words, if you're doing a good job, we're going to tip you. So that's interesting. In another academic paper, Determinants of Tipping Behavior, and this was Nusrat Jahan published in 2018, households that pay with credit cards have the highest average tip size. 17.11%. Households with higher education tend to tip higher than those who don't have a high school diploma. There are no significant differences in tipping behavior when race is considered a factor. None of the income categories are statistically significant in terms of average tip size. Households with a male primary respondent leave 2.18% higher tip. Than households with female primary respondent. So men tip slightly more than women, 2.18% higher. It really is not a very big difference. Households consisting of a single member leave a 6.5% higher tips than households with more than five members. Well, what can we take away from this conversation about tales of tipping while traveling to restaurants and other faraway locations? Well, first, each country has certain norms regarding tipping. So learn what the norms are in the country where you're a citizen. And don't assume a little research about tipping behavior when you're traveling internationally. Second, you don't want to tip at all. Just take a cruise or some other travel package that includes tips. And third... Understand that tipping cannot be avoided altogether. Wait staff typically depend on tips because the hourly wages are low. So if they give you good service, reward them with at least 20% or more if you're feeling generous. And that's the bigger picture. Until next time for Narrative Wars, I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons. We the people sick and tired. So tired hey.